But what's absurd about this whole debate is it's still not fully the way it should function. So instead of just saying the schools should pay the players, which they're still not allowed to do directly, they're saying, oh, these boosters can buy the name, image, and likeness of players, but then they don't use the name, image, yeah. and likeness of players. So they're basically just paying them to play. So mm -hmm. why don't we just make that the system? At least some of this reform seems very fair considering how much these students put in and a lot of them end up losing money in the process. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? On today's show, we'll update you all on the war in Ukraine and one of its far-reaching consequences, the global food shortage. Is big tech too big? We'll discuss why Congress has Google's ad business in its crosshairs. The man who attacked Dave Chappelle on stage is giving his side of the story, but according to Dave, the attacker's story may end with him. And finally, two legends of college football are throwing more shade than the bleachers at Bryant-Denny Stadium provide. The latest on the very public spat between coaches Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. But first things first, you can never have too many deadly viruses going around. So monkeypox is here to make sure nobody gets too comfortable. But in all seriousness, the Surgeon General says it's no time to panic. This is a, uh, a virus that is rare in humans, but when it does come up, it's, it's a serious one that we should uh, investigate and we got to make sure that uh, we understand if and how it is spreading. At this time, we don't want people to worry at this point, again, these numbers are, are still small. We want them to be aware of these symptoms and if they have any concerns to, to reach out to their doctor. Great, another virus. Uh, are you worried, Robbie? I'm not worried. I think, you know, I'm not any more worried about this than, than a lot of other things in the world right now. And I think, you know, the, the numbers here right now are pretty small. Uh, as of Saturday, the WHO said there are 92 cases in 12 countries. There are about 28 other suspected cases in the U.S. There's very few. There's six people who sat near an infected traveler on an international flight who have been quarantined. There's a confirmed case in Massachusetts. They're still figuring that out. And so we're not talking about huge numbers right now. It is a deadly virus. There are two different strains of this. One has a 1% mortality rate and one has a 10% mortality rate. But we think that this is the 1% strain that's going around the world. And nobody has died, at least as of this recording, from it in this recent outbreak. So I'm not too concerned right now, but obviously it's something that we should monitor. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would also add that it requires very intimate contact in order to contract it. It's also doesn't tend to spread in its incubation phase. It's pretty obvious when people have symptoms. And so I think that there's, and the smallpox vaccine as well, that's that's worth adding, is potentially uh, able to treat people while, if they're exposed during that incubation period, which is long enough to administer it. And so I'm, I'm disappointed to see that there was a lot of panic in the media. And I think that we should have been a little more responsible. I know that we all kind of are a little triggered after COVID and rightfully so. But I think that this is something that we we're fortunate we can kind of cool it on a little bit and just hope that the people who've gotten it are safe and recover. Maybe I haven't been watching enough media because, you know, the clip that we just saw from the Surgeon General, it seems like at least the things I've seen are pretty measured, basically saying like, look, like this isn't that deadly. You don't have that much to worry about. I think like the name of this virus, I think could maybe is a little bit alarming to people anytime you're talking about a pox in general. But Ricky, what are you seeing out there? Because maybe, maybe I haven't seen it yet. Like, what, what's the alarmism? Because I'm not seeing it from people in my life. I'm not seeing it from the things I read. Most things I'm seeing are like, yeah, there's just not that many people infected right now. 
I think that's what the the general tone is now. But at first, before we really had discussed it or before experts had really come out to discuss it more fully, um, there were a lot of headlines and it was trending on Twitter. It was kind of all over the place of people saying, oh, this there's this new terrifying virus. And like, I think that we need to make sure that we're taking a measured approach to things like this. And I, I think that this was just a consequence of our, our instinct to panic. But I, I mean, I think that as time has gone on, it's gotten more measured. But that initial reaction needs to be careful in order to be responsible. Yeah, I will echo something that Ricky is saying. I was on Instagram and I saw a news outlet that did say something about wearing masks will help prevent monkeypox. And the reality is so few people actually have this. I did feel that was kind of weird to see that because it's like, well, if, if so few people have it. So it did kind of feel like they were conflating the monkeypox thing with just the COVID era, you know, pandemic regulations. And it's mostly on the left. There is this base in this country that just will not let go of pandemic regulations. And anytime any little thing like this starts up, it's like, oh, we got to put our mask back on. We got to shut our schools back down. We got to go back into lockdown mode. And it's like, well, let's calm down and let's see what this thing actually is before we start overreacting and destroy our economy again. Yeah, but I think that this is such a small part of the puzzle. Like just as I think there are certain people who are addicted to pandemic politics, there are people who are addicted to the people who are addicted to pandemic (laughs) politics. So they're like, hey, like there are some people freaking out over this. Let me elevate how ridiculous those people are because, you know, there's a certain politics to that to yeah. exposing people for overreacting. And so to me, I think this is like nothing to see here yet. Uh, obviously, you want to monitor anything. There are public health officials who I have, you know, obviously they have been imperfect, but their job is to monitor this. You know, one of them we just heard from, he doesn't seem to be that alarmed. I think the Biden White House has generally speaking been pretty measured on this. And, you know, to me, I'd say to our audience, nothing to be concerned about yet, but we'll keep updating people on this. Absolutely. It's been exactly three months since Russia invaded Ukraine, three months of slow burning conflict where we have seen Moscow seriously adjust its ambitions. What was once assumed to be a quick operation to overtake the entire country has shrunk to a narrow focus on the Donbass region just over the Russian border. Ravi, what's the latest on the war itself? Yeah, we we want to make sure that we're continually coming back to this story because obviously there's so much happening. And I think one of the biggest pieces of news coming out of the past week is that Ukraine has been clear that they won't agree to a ceasefire that would involve handing over any territory to Russia. And so the region you're talking about, obviously, where a lot of the hostilities are still concentrated, a lot of people thought at the outset of this war that the likely peace settlement would include Ukraine giving a little bit in yeah. that region, especially given its history. But, you know, they're pretty clear on this. This is the chief of staff to the president of Ukraine, uh, he said, quote, the war must end with a complete restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. The Polish president backed him up. So it seems like they're saying, look, the war to them, I think they seem to be pretty optimistic that they're going to defeat Russia, I guess. And so they don't want to signal in any way that they're going to give up any territory, which either means, depending on if you're an optimist or not, that that this could you know, have some kind of clear resolution in favor of Ukraine or that this war will never end because yeah. there's nothing if they're not going to give that up i don't know how russia saves face and leaves yeah i don't see russia i don't see russia backing down but one one way that ukraine does have a little bit of an advantage is they're getting a lot of aid from the united states as you know that 40 billion dollar aid bill 
passed uh, in the Senate. There were a few people, I think about 11 senators that voted against it, all Republicans. But generally speaking, this was a bipartisan effort to get this aid to Ukraine. I wanted to break down just what this aid was being spent on. So out of the 40 billion, 11 billion was going to weapons uh, that will be sent to Ukraine. An additional 9 billion will be spent to replenish the depleted U.S. weapons stockpile. So it's kind of like we're just, you know, giving money to ourselves to make more weapons. 8.8 billion will be used to support operations of Ukraine's government and will combat human trafficking, which has been a big issue in Eastern Europe during all of this. 5 billion for global food assistance, 4.3 billion in international disaster aid, and an additional 900 million to support the refugees. So that's kind of a breakdown of just what that money is being used for, because I know a lot of people were concerned about like, you know, what was this 40 billion actually going to do? And the war is already causing a humanitarian catastrophe for several reasons, but there may be another one coming, a global food shortage. Officials all over the world are warning that tens of millions will soon be struggling to eat. Bread prices in Lebanon have increased by 70 percent and food shipments from Odessa could not reach Somalia. And on top of this, Russia is now hoarding its own food exports as a form of blackmail, holding back supplies to increase global prices or trading wheat in exchange for political support. This is using hunger and grain to wield power. What exactly is going on with this shortage? Well, to give a sense on what this actually looks like on the ground, wheat prices are up 53% from the start of 2022. 23 countries have declared um, that they're like imposing severe restrictions on their exports, which represents about 10% of the world's calories. So everyone who has crops is essentially hoarding them at this point in time. And this has gotten way worse since uh, the Ukrainian war broke out. But there are some causes that have been sort of underlying like COVID-19, issues with energy, some unprecedented drought and climate change results, um, and then also just the increased shipping costs from gas prices as well. But um, certainly the the conflict with Ukraine is is central here. Ukraine's exports feed 400 million people, mostly with grains and oil seeds. And what's happened essentially is that um, Russian forces have uh, kind of created a blockade around the port of Odessa, and Ukraine has responded by mining the waters so that couldn't even leave if they wanted to. And so although farmers will have a whole nother set of crops that will be ready to be harvested in June, they're not going to be able to store them anywhere because they still haven't exported what they have. And so where we think this will be, have the the greatest impact is in the Middle East and Africa, um, where countries are just struggling to subsidize their people. um, And potentially another 440 million additional people will be uh, struggling with hunger as a result. So this is super tragic. Yeah. And, you know, the war obviously is a huge precipitating factor. Since the war, 23 countries have declared restrictions on their food exports. And this reminds me, I think, Corey, you'll get this reference. Ricky, you're probably too young to get this. But if you remember Ferris Bueller, remember when Ben Stein was like, you know, Bueller, Bueller, like he was talking about the smoot Holly tariffs, yep. which were, you know, at that time we were, you know, entering a global depression. The U.S. issued initially tried to I- issue restrictions on food exports mm-hmm. and imports, mm-hmm. and that triggered a. Uh, many people said that it accelerated the depression because what happened was U.S. restricted imports. It didn't started with food, but it 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 spread to all sorts of goods. Other countries retaliated, and then you had everybody restricting trade, which froze up 
access to goods in, around the world. And I think that's part of what's going on here is that everybody for their own self-interest are starting to uh, look at their own exports of food to say, well, maybe we need to keep our food at home because of national security mm -hmm. reasons, for reasons of food security. And that is rational from an individual perspective, but is really bad for global access to food, especially for countries that are huge net importers of food like Egypt, which yeah. are really struggling to feed their populations right now. Yeah. And Ricky, this is also affecting food prices here in the United States as well, right? So food prices in the United States are a little bit more complex. It's not just directly from the Ukraine situation, but certainly um, energy costs is another enormous factor there and the just supply chain issues in general. Um, so we probably will not see any sort of shortage as a result of the Ukrainian um, war because we don't import that much from that area of the country. I think the place where these effects will be most obviously felt is in the Middle East and Africa. Although one wrinkle is that um, in in the Ukraine, they're a major ex a major exporter of fertilizer. And so because farmers are having a hard time getting fertilizer, it's four times as expensive as typically it would be in the UK right now. Um, they're either going to have to plant less crops or just kind of have a worse uh, harvest every year. And so either way, that's going to hurt the consumer. So certainly it's, it's affecting prices, but we would not expect to see any shortages by most estimates. Well, I was looking at potential solutions, and some of them seem more promising than others. And so you've got number mm -hmm. one would be lifting these export bans. So just opening up the trade of food, generally speaking. I think two would be opening up the port and you know allowing Ukraine to, to ship some of its food and fertilizer. But you also have the possibility, apparently, of uh, the EU helping Ukraine take about 20% of their food out of the country via rail, which could really help given mm -hmm. how much uh, is produced there. And then there's this whole other question, Ricky, of biofuels, right? Like we have so many mandates in the Western world uh, to, you know, for a certain amount of fuel consumption through biofuels. We have in the United States, they have in the EU. You know, there's some estimations that say that 10% of all grain used in the world are used for biofuels. So potentially there could be like a loosening of that uh, mandate during this period of the food crisis, I could free up another 10% of grain. Yeah, we're already starting to see that uh, start to take place. And that seems pretty logical. I mean, obviously, that is a sustainable way to create fuel. But at a moment like this, having a mandate in place that you have to do that when there are shortages is not sustainable. And a lot of nations are coming to realize that pretty quickly. Yes. Well, this is a huge issue that we'll definitely have to keep a eye out on. Uh, let's move on to our next story. Two giants of SEC football, the only college football that matters, might not be shaking hands after this year's game. Alabama's Nick Saban and Texas A&M's Jimbo Fisher have gotten into a major dispute over recruiting tactics and the controversial new rules regarding NIL. This very public spat says a lot about the weird flux state of college sports right now from one kind of broken to another. So uh, for people who are not aware, Nick Saban, the greatest uh, coach in college football history. And I mean, since I'm not, Bear, since Bear Bryant. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, but if you just look at the numbers and the stats, uh, I think Saban has, has gone a little further now. But the greatest coach in football history, Nick Saban, was uncharacteristic in doing this. So had some words to say about what Fisher has been doing with the Texas A&M program and his recruiting practices. Well, actually, we have a clip. You've read about them. You know who they are. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player, all right? But I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. Bought every player, Robbie. That's what he's, he's saying about it. Yeah, and so, Corey, what is he – walk us through what's happening in college football now. So, like, how is it – like, 
he, it's possible that what he's saying is true, but that it's legal, right? Well, basically what's happening is there's this new thing called the NIL, which is name, image, and likeness. So for years, for the entire existence of college sports, athletes couldn't get paid for you know playing on these teams. I mean, a lot of them, they had scholarships. They were going to these schools for practically free, but they didn't have any actual money. And they were bringing in billions of dollars of revenue for all these colleges. And it was just getting exponentially more and more money that they were bringing in every year. So in like 2019, California passed laws basically saying they would allow uh, college athletes to be able to monetize their name, likeness, and image in order to make some money off of what they were doing. And the NCAA was dead set against this, fought against it like tooth and nail. And then eventually other states started passing. I think over 25 states now have laws allowing these deals. And it's basically created this crazy atmosphere where now you have these boosters and these donors behind these schools who are basically just making almost in many cases direct payments to these students saying oh we're going to be doing these brand deals with you we're going to do doing these likeness deals but a lot of people are saying they're doing that in just an effort to get the best players and that is what Saban has accused the boosters of A&M doing uh, but Jimbo Fisher did not take these allegations lightly he fired back pretty harshly this is what he had to say about what Saban was accusing him of players have done a great job the whole organization of recruiting people People. It's despicable that we got to set at this level of ball and, and say these things to defend the people of this organization, the kids, 17-year-old kids and their families. It's amazing. Some people think they're God. Go dig into how God did his, his deal. You may find out about, about a guy that a lot of things you don't want to know. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You can find out anything you want to find out, what he does and how he does it. And it's despicable. Fisher was actually the offensive coordinator for Saban uh, at LSU in the early 2000s for several seasons. And so there's a little bit of history there. And also Fisher was the first of Saban's assistant coaches to beat him. A&M beat uh, Alabama last October, which was and it was just like it was like a it was like a fluke. You know, it was just oh, yeah? like a, you know, it was a field goal at the end of the game it was a fluke. Was it also a fluke when uh, Saban lost in the national championship to another one of his assistants? Oh, Link. Well, well, I mean, at, well, at, at that particular point, you know, the ball had already been and in Georgia you know they had played them once and so they knew their game I don't want to get into the, a big thing here but what I mean what do we think about these these NIL deals I mean is this going to ruin the integrity of college sports with all this new money flowing around well, I think it's silly because I think as you met what you were talking about was all the legal money that was pouring into the you know these students like we're saying like the first time students were paid but I think every you know Jimbo Fisher is alluding to the fact I think that Saban possibly you know allegedly may have been part of a system in which the boosters were encouraged behind the scenes to pay players off the books. And without question, that has happened. You know, there are some entire programs that went under because of this, like SMU. But uh, I think what's happening now is we're bringing it slightly into the light. But what's absurd about this whole debate is it's still not fully the way it should function. So instead of just saying the schools should pay the players, which they're still not allowed to do directly, they're saying, oh, these boosters can can buy the name, image, and likeness of players, but then they don't use the name, image, and yeah. likeness of players. So they're basically just paying them to play. So mm -hmm. why don't we just make that the system? Deion Sanders, uh, you know, obviously the Hall of Fame football player, pointed out the absurdity of this. He's the, the coach of Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi. And he said, the standards for name, image, and likeness, the only problem I have with the big boys, meaning schools like Alabama, is I ain't seen anybody's name, 
nobody's image on nothing and nobody's likeness on nothing. Yeah. Meaning like they're just buying it. They're not using these. Like there's like backup offensive tackles, yeah. name, image, and likeness isn't going anywhere. Not even on a car dealership. No. Yeah. And as much as I, I can hear my dad cringing already as I say this, I really just am not a sports person and this isn't my biggest issue. But I can see just from like the vantage point of somebody who isn't really as familiar with how these leagues work that there's a gradation of like what name image and likeness can actually look like because previously uh, athletes couldn't sell their own jersey or like have a YouTube channel that was monetized or or pay, uh, charge people to, to do sports lessons and these coaches were making literally millions of dollars and so I think that there was some super necessary reform but what's happening right now seems to be just like working out how does this actually look and how do we keep people from exploiting this system but I would say that at least some of this reform seems very very fair considering how much these students put in and a lot of them end up losing money in the process. Yeah, Absolutely. and it's worth noting that the Supreme Court also stepped in to say that the colleges really have very limited ability to do anything to stop this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree, Ricky. There have been instances in which these college players couldn't you know, legally make any money off of their name, likeness, and image. Yeah. And I think about it from the standpoint of like a college football player. They have to play for at least three years before they're eligible for the draft. And that's a lot of wear and tear on your body. They could easily get injured in any one of those seasons. And if they were like a star player, you know, the school made all this money off them. They may have been included in some video game and they can't, they couldn't prior to this see a dime of that. And then if they're injured, can't go to the league, you know, maybe they'll get the college degree, but who knows how much uh, how much value that will have for them, depending on what they were majored in. Yeah, so this yeah is who knows what those majors are, like art history or something. Communications, you know? usually. Uh, <laughs> no offense to the art history people. And I have but, a communications degree, so no offense to them either. But, <laughs> but you know, so, so so few of them actually make it to the NFL, and then yeah. the people who do make it to the NFL don't last very long. So no. people think, oh, they make a ton of money, but let's say you're making like a rookie salary of a few hundred thousand dollars, you maybe last one or two years. Yeah. Then what are you going to do for the rest of your life, exactly. right? And you may have major health issues, concussions, things like that. And so I think this is a welcome development. I, I would say though that if I were a taxpayer in a state that actually had major football and basketball programs, I would be concerned where, where this is going because, you know, in New York, we don't really have these issues as much, but you could imagine an arms race down south where oh, yeah. like the higher education budgets start going to multi-million dollar salaries for players. It's already absurd that the highest paid state employees in a lot of states are football and basketball oh, yeah. coaches. Yeah. It's going to soon be the wide receiver, mm -hmm. the quarterback. You know, like the star quarterback That's in insane. Alabama is going to start making like $50 million. Like, you know, it's- I don't know about that, it. But, but, but Nick Saban <laughs> is the highest paid state employee in Alabama. Right. And I think in Kentucky, it's a basketball coach. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's not a surgeon. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a teacher. Mm -hmm there's a pretty good case to be made against like actual actual salaries for these athletes because first of all they're schools and do we really want students to be employees of the school like it kind of confuses the entire system and then also you would just have this crazy competitive bidding war which i agree particularly with with public universities is really just not an appealing prospect, I think, to any any sane taxpayer. Yeah, for sure. There definitely has to be some regulation put in place, whether it's from the NCAA. I know that they've wanted Congress to step in, but Congress seems very unwilling to touch this. There needs to be put some some, some regulation in place to where like if you're going to get an NIL deal, it has to be a real NIL. Like there really has to be some value behind your name, likeness and image. And there have to be actual plans for that, not just, oh, we're going to get this star recruit here and say we're going to do this on the back end, just give them money straight up front. So I do, I do think there needs to be some regulation to the system. Yeah. And I wonder, if a media company like ours could actually employ players now, you know, like because it's similar standard, right? Like you should be able to be paid, you know, outside of your mm -hmm. athletic performance. I think that's actually the Supreme Court ruling would allow them to be 
paid for their actual athletic performance. But I'm wondering if you're going to start to see like ESPN and places like this start to scoop up college football talent, yeah. you know, in, you know, when their games are over, when it's somebody else's bowl game, et cetera. Yeah. And you start to see these people on TV, which I also think is a pretty good development. That'd be interesting. So you're saying you want to get I'm a college if you're football out there. player yeah, if, to I'm work saying if you're out debate. there, If you're out there and you want a podcast, you know, what's the, the Alabama quarterback's name? I think his name is Bryce Young. Yeah. Probably. So Bryce Young, if you're out there and you need a podcast, let us know. I think I don't know if he'd come here, but because we're like in New York, but yeah, we could um, do a remote. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, hey, hey. Testing that out today. Yeah. Hey, there you go. There <laughs> you go. A new bipartisan bill in the Senate seeks to break up Google's ad business. That's a big problem for a company that gets more than 80% of its revenue from advertising. But the antitrust debate doesn't stop with Google. Congress has its knives out for all of the big tech firms these days. And it's anybody's guess as to how all of this is going to turn out. Ravi, where do things stand with this particular situation? Right. So this is a bill that has some really interesting co-sponsors. And there's a bill in the House and a bill in the Senate. And I'll just focus on the senators. You have Senator Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, you know, two Republicans, like pretty right-wing Republicans. And then you have Amy Klobuchar, Richard Blumenthal, two pretty left-wing Democrats coming together for legislation. So that in and of itself is notable. So like what is happening here to bring these people together? Antitrust, and we talked about this with 230, but with antitrust, like I would say like criticisms and skepticism of big tech seems to be one of the few areas that bring people together across the aisles. That doesn't mean that we should like it. But it does mean that this is a potential for actual legislation to get passed when you're seeing people like that. Now, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to this piece of legislation than some of the changes to 230 that we've talked about in previous podcasts. And we'll link to that episode in the show notes. But essentially what's at stake here is that every time you click on a website or app, in that milliseconds that it takes uh, for the page to load, there's like an auction happening for your attention for the ads. And Alphabet Incorporated, they operate one of the largest exchanges for ads. So basically the marketplace for buying and selling ads. But they also operate themselves as buyers of ads and as sellers of ads. And that's what's at issue here is that the legislation being proposed would stop them from being on all sides of this transaction. So, you know, the metaphor here would be if Goldman Sachs own the New York Stock Exchange, was buying and selling on the stock exchange and own the exchange itself. You know, there are all sorts of allegations that that would give them the ability to do things called front running or insider trading, uh, given the information that they have. And there, there are allegations that Google is doing just that and using its power and its dominance on all sides of these transactions to get themselves favorable terms, to manipulate the market, et cetera. And that's what they're trying to stop here. Yeah, but an ad, selling an ad is a little different from selling and trading stocks because if I'm not if I'm correct me if I'm wrong when the auction for the ad takes place within this time period you know it's it's pretty much like whoever you know submits the bid within has the same chance whereas yeah. on the stock market it's like you got to be the fastest yeah we think right and but let's pretend for a second that that's totally true which is very possible that what you're saying is totally true there's like a couple critiques of of Google here and when you bring together Alphabet Meta and Amazon mm. Together, they account for more than seven in ten dollars of global ad spending, digital ad spending, and forty-seven percent of all total advertising spending. So this gets to monopoly territory here, and you know there there are different rationales for our antitrust laws. So originally, it had to do with you know market concentration in and of itself. So if you control a certain amount of a market in and of itself, that's a problem. Now our antitrust laws have evolved to be a, a bit more narrow, I think in part because of like a, uh, a sustained effort by uh, conservative justices to narrow it to say, 
if there's market concentration, uh, the biggest thing we're concerned about is if that leads to a degradation of the product yes. or an increase of the price mm -hmm. for consumers. Mm -hmm. And so the big question here is, does Google's dominance and, and the sort of small amount of players here, their dominance of this particular ad market and in search, which I think there's a lot of activity there too, which is separate from this bill, but kind of related, does their dominance of this market lead to either increased prices or a degradation of the product for consumers? And, and that's really going to be at issue here. But if they change it with legislation, it, it's not even that standard will no longer apply. And they'll just say you cannot operate on all sides of this transaction. There's different levels of difficulty in proving that. I think if you are if you're looking for harm in the case of other businesses, certainly Google advertising their own services first will harm other businesses. But the the case for consumer harm, I think, is a lot more difficult to make specifically with the ad system. I mean, it's not the advertising prices are not necessarily passed down to consumers. I think that's the best case that you could possibly make. But I would say like as a whole, it just feels kind of arbitrary to me. And I'd rather see something more like this is this is kind of like layering on the original American Innovation and Online Choice Online Act, which basically just said that Google can't favor their own services in advertising. And that seems a little more common sense to me than to say, here's this cap that some politicians who aren't really familiar with um, the the entirety of the industry uh, came up with. But I would say as much as I am suspicious of antitrust stuff, one thing that I do like is that oftentimes this can create voluntary change, even if uh, these investigations don't actually lead to any sort of crackdown. And I think, th I think that looking for accountability and for openness and for clarity on how alg algorithms work and all the different concerns around big tech is uh, ultimately a positive, although I, I'm, I'm skeptical of these kind of arbitrary numbers. Well, Ricky, I think like when, th when they're positioning this as uh, harm to consumers, I think they're not thinking of like the end user who's clicking on the ad, but the people who are buying the ad. So like people like, you know, media mm -hmm. companies like us, you know, saying yeah. that because there's such a constricted market, Google can charge us whatever they want um, because there's almost like there's so few players involved here. But I think like another big question here is the very existence of this exchange in the first place. So, you know, uh, a few years ago, Google bought this company called DoubleClick and that Google was steering people to their ad exchange and not providing the same benefit to their competitors. And so that's when you start to get into a situation where like, all right, like, is there uh, ability to control one part of the market affecting another part of the market? Like, you know, if you remember the Microsoft case, there was yeah. the case of Internet Explorer and Netscape where they were saying, well, the fact that you buy Windows and then they're putting Explorer on the desktop and driving people to Internet Explorer, is that anti-competitive behavior because it kind of kills Netflix, Netscape. Netscape yeah. uh, and so that's, that's one question. I think another question about the degradation of your experience is, I think it's strong strongest on search. Like if you go to search anything on Google right now, there's just so many damn ads yeah. that there's a big question as to whether that's the superior product anymore. And the dominance of Google and and they they in many ways cement their dominance through their control of other things like the smartphone market, et cetera, where they have, you know, they dominate the smartphone market outside of the United States. We're so used to iOS here, but they, you know, people are being steered to all sorts of Google products yeah. 
through Google's dominance in the smartphone market as well. So there's like all these questions about whether you're getting an inferior service because of this market dominance that are just kind of factual questions that I think have been playing out in various legal cases around the country. Google is currently being sued by every state except for Alabama right now because of the various lawsuits where state's attorneys general are coming together. So there's just a ton of litigation uh, at the foot of uh, Google right now for a host of different anti-competitive uh, claims. So I think they're in you know the various regulatory sites. I think this bill would be very inconvenient to them given how much revenue they get from ads, but it's not gonna be the end of it. I would say a lot of these lawsuits are gonna be even more threatening to them. Yeah, I would just say though, I, I have trouble buying the idea that um, we're getting such a degraded product or such a terrible product. Like Google essentially, I, I mean, there's DuckDuckGo, there's Yahoo Search, there's Bing, there's a bunch of different options and none of us pick it because Google is really an incredible tool. And like, yes, the ads might be annoying, but I think, you know, there is a lot of beauty in what it can connect you to and the wealth of knowledge that it becomes a portal into. And so while I do agree that there's probably some anti-competitive behavior and like batting down other ad services, I would say as a whole, it's a it's a pretty incredible product. And I think just totally demonizing the company is a mistake. Yeah, Ricky brings up a good point. I mean, Google's name is literally synonymous with searching things online. And as she also brings up, I mean, how many of us really go to Bing on a daily basis to do our searches? I mean, Google does create a superior product. And, and again, you've mentioned that a lot of the antitrust laws in more recent years have been about whether or not there's price gouging involved, or whether or not this is creating some type of inferior product as a result of the lack of competition. I don't I don't know about the price gouging because, you know, you're, you're talking about them charging people more for ads and things like that. But I don't think we can see sit here and say that Google created a more inferior product due to a lack of competi competition. I just don't think that's the yeah, case. Yeah, and we actually don't know the answer to the price gouging yeah. claims. There yeah. are claims going one way or the other. And, you know, in the, the case for the state's attorney general brought, I think Texas was the leading litigant in that case. There were claims being made by employees that were you know, to that effect. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're talking about anecdotes at this point. There is, we'll link in our uh, show notes, there's competing op-eds, you know, one op-ed in the New York Times by a Yale professor, and then a response by Google's head of economic policy that I think gets to the heart of these claims. I would say I was getting ready on the show to claim that the price gouging, there was evidence for it. But then mm -hmm. I clicked on this New York Times op-ed where they, they literally link saying there's like a 50% price tax or something you know, early on when, when Google bought DoubleClick. And then I clicked on it and it was like super anecdotal and thin. And then you could read the response from Google. They basically point that out, basically saying like prices actually went down because of this. There's another professor from University of Chicago, we'll link to his op-ed, where he basically says the ad market before Google came along was a complete disaster. Yeah. And they helped improve it. But like my my feeling about this is you can both believe that Google was an improvement, just like you know, the the um you know the interstate railroad system or standard, you know, early days of standard oil and yeah. oil exploration were improvements, but at a certain point the concentration became becomes a threat yeah. and you should, you know, at a certain point you could decide to break somebody up or in this case, it's not even breaking up the company. It's just saying, look, like you have to choose which side of a transaction you're going to be on or like banks, you have to wall them off in some kind of way that we can be, be certain of. Like as a bank, 
there are, you you can kind of separate out or they used to you know, they've been weakening this over the years but you could separate out certain kind of trading activities that you have to eliminate conflicts of interest and and by law we can verify that it's possible that we could do that with Google as well when you were looking up those op-ed pieces did you see any Google ads on the side of the <laughs> I know we have a we have a photo where is it where we were we were clicking on one of these articles about Google and there was like a nice little Google sponsored ad right next to it so, yeah, yeah yeah well you could have binged it it, but you could have binged it, but you chose not to. Well, let me shout exactly. out Neva, uh, exactly. which is the company I use, which is actually former Google people uh, created this company called Neva, which is an ad-free search company. And I find that their search results are better. This gets to the point about whether it's an inferior or superior product. And yeah, I can use it. I think the question is, like, people could use uh, Netscape as well. Yeah. But the, yeah. I think the question before the, the courts back then was, even if you can use it, are there certain barriers to use? Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm not even actually sure I know the answer to that, but that's at least a big question people are going to be asking right but now. But do those search engines have cool doodles for different holidays? That's the real question. Because yeah. if not, I honestly wouldn't know. Yeah. I don't even know what Bing looks like. If it, you could show me any possible <laughs> mock-up, and I would believe it. Oh wow! So let's move on to our last story. Dave Chappelle once joked that there's an animal in us all. Meaning that any of us could just snap at any time. Well, now we are learning more about what made Isaiah Lee snap when he charged Chappelle on stage earlier this month. Lee claims he was triggered by Chappelle's jokes about the LGBT community and homelessness. I find this really interesting. Ricky, when we talked about this story, we didn't want to speculate what Lee's you know, reasoning was, but you kind of hinted that you thought it had some political motivations behind it. The reason that I expected this might be the case was because of the timing. It was right after a joke that I think was at the LGBT community's expense, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially what it sounds like he's saying is that he expected to have, quote, a good time, even though he knew who Chappelle was and that there had been controversy. And obviously this is a sensitive topic for him. But I would say that if you're hoping to have a good time and then a joke that you don't like happens, that's not really an excuse to just go and charge someone on stage. I think this is pretty much exactly what we thought it'd be. The extrapolation of if your words are violence, then my violence to your words is completely justifiable. And he says he has no regrets. So this is uh, not this is not a great situation. No, not at all. Yeah, I don't have much to add other than the fact that this is, you know, this is what we feared. And I agree with you, Ricky, that you know, if words are violence, then what do we call this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think my biggest question is was Lee more triggered by the jokes or was he more triggered by the outrage that has been generated about, about Chappelle so much in these last few months? Because, you know, you really have to, have to talk to certain people. I mean, there are certain people from these communities that he, you know, quote unquote, makes fun of that don't have a huge problem with his jokes. Not to mention he makes fun of all kinds of communities. He makes fun of African-Americans all the time. He makes jokes about slavery, civil rights movement. He makes jokes at black people's expense that other black comedians don't really do, like historical jokes and things like that that are that, are, that can go into some really sensitive territory. And you don't see hardly any. I mean, I'm sure they are out there, but you don't see hardly any people from the black community saying, oh, Chappelle's a traitor for making these jokes. So it's almost like I feel like so much of the outrage about Chappelle has been generated by people who are telling people you need to be outraged by this, whether or not the person themselves actually is outraged. Yeah, and and I'm a I'm a defender of of comedians like Chappelle and their right to do what they do, but I also think like there are some people who made me reflect. I still believe this is horrible. I still believe in his right to have a Netflix special and all that. But I do think there are some critiques of this that have made me think. One is the question of can you. 
what's the difference between making fun of your own versus other people is always a complicated yeah. question. And the second is the, the question of emphasis and volume. Uh, I was asking a friend of mine uh, who's Jewish about the space Jews joke that was in the same special. Mm -hmm. And he was like, it's funny. And then he was like, but if every joke was a space Jews joke, I would kind of have a problem with that. That's a good point. Uh, and so to me, like, I think that I'm generally very, you know, I'm a strong believer in protecting comedians, right? It's to be funny. Like, and this same guy said that the homeless joke said, I'm like, you can just start going down a list of everything. Like, I don't make fun of homeless people, but I'm also not a comedian. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, like, I don't mm -hmm. want to start creating a do and don't list for comedians, but I also do think like the emphasis is something he has to answer to as a comedian. Like he is a public figure and like any fair reading of the special to me was that it, it was both comedy, but also commentary. And just as much as I believe he has a right to say what he was saying, I believe that people have a right to critique that. They don't have a right to attack him. And Absolutely. that's where the line was crossed here. Absolutely. Yeah, I would just say, though, that there's a certain level of irony of like you can critique something, but then you go to an in-person comedy show expecting to not have issues like this is just really right. Like, and just his, just don't his engage. It's yeah. his free speech. Don't engage with his free speech then. Yeah, if you know what a comedian's all about and you know he's made fun of people in your community or something that you find to be a sensitive topic, I don't see why you would pay a lot of money because I've gone to Chappelle's show before and they're not cheap. Yeah. Uh, I don't see why you would pay all that money just to go and there's a possibility that there's going to be something that you're uncomfortable with there. I would also just add that right. even though he denies that he has any mental issues, his lawyer is saying that he's getting treatment for it and he previously stabbed his roommate so i think oh, wow. it would be wrong hmm. to conflate him as like the be all end all of this like kind of coddled world like this is also just not really a, a mentally well individual so i i don't want to make the step and say like anyone who has any sort of censorious nature might do something like this but i think the fact that he used the word triggering just demonstrates that this mindset is or or that ideology at least is at play at par in part for sure for sure well, we want to thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.